either the U.S. enforces some rules in the world or there are no Every U.S. president has tried to diminish tension with Russia, has reached out to the Russians. Most of those have failed, especially when Vladimir Putin became the leader. They're still killing guys who joined the jihad in 1979 or 1980 or 1981 who are still in the game. We are seeing a ramp up in North Korean cyber capabilities over the last decade. Iran is basically putting forth these claims of nuclear innocence that they are doing nothing wrong, that there are no violations, and that's just factually not correct. I am fearful for what happens to Turkey now. If you thought that it was dangerous that a coup might have toppled this democracy, think about what this very autocratic man might do. In recent weeks, the pandemic, the global spread of a deadly virus that originated in China, has dominated the news media and therefore most of the public's attention. Among the important stories that have been marginalized, the ongoing conflict in Afghanistan, as well as America's diplomatic attempts to end that conflict or at least reduce America's participation in it. With me today to discuss these and related issues are Tom Jocelyn, FDD's senior fellow and senior editor of FDD's Long War Journal. You'll see his writings often these days in the dispatch. Also, Bradley Bowman, senior director of FDD's Center on Military and Political Power. Brad served more than 15 years as an active duty U.S. Army officer, including time as a company commander, Black Hawk pilot, congressional affairs officer in the Pentagon, and staff officer in Afghanistan. Brad and Tom, let's, let's start with the pandemic. Do we know whether it's had much of a, an impact on, on Afghanistan, on the fighting, on, on life in Kabul and other cities, on the government? I'm guessing Afghan prisons are not the best place to be during a pandemic. Tom, why don't you start? I think it's obvious that it's had an impact in Afghanistan. The bottom line is that COVID-19 has not overshadowed the fighting. The offensive after the February 29th withdrawal agreement was signed between the U.S. and the Taliban. The Taliban pressed the offensive throughout all the country. We've documented, my colleague Bill Roger and I have documented the war fighting throughout the country. So um, despite the pleas from the international community, from the Afghan government, from the U.S. to basically have a ceasefire, both because of the February 29th agreement between the U.S. and the Taliban in Doha, and because of the coronavirus pandemic, the Taliban has pressed the offensive and kept fighting. You know, let me pick up on that with, 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 with you, Brad. Interesting, I saw that Al Jazeera is reporting that, that the Taliban agreed to a truce in provinces most affected by the coronavirus. I don't necessarily trust Al Jazeera's accuracy. On the other hand, the New York Times, whose accuracy I sometimes question as well, has reported the following. This Just a few quotes. The country's conflict is back into full-fledged bloodletting, according to the Times. Also, the Taliban have ignored what the U.S. officials describe as an understanding that they would reduce violence by up to 80% in the prelude to negotiations over a power-sharing agreement, and fighting has recently been reported in 20 of the country's 34 provinces. One more quote. A series of bloody attacks by the Taliban in recent weeks um, after that President Ashraf Ghani of Afghanistan ordered his forces, which had remained on active defense, to go back on offense. What's your, what are your thoughts about all this, uh, Brad? You know, the, the long-suffering people of Afghanistan are confronting uh, a double whammy here. I mean, they've confronted uh, horrific attacks on, on maternity wards in the last few days and attacks on funeral processions. And now they're also confronting renewed violence and, and COVID-19. Uh, according to the uh, John Hopkins University uh, Coronavirus Resource Center, as of today, there were 8,145 confirmed cases and 187 deaths. And as Tom says, that's almost certainly 
undercounted because of lack of testing and, and just uh, healthcare infrastructure. Uh, two days ago, the U.S. Embassy reported uh, 7,072 and 173 deaths. So um, it's clear that clearly it's there. Um, the government has confirmed, the Afghan government has confirmed that there is community spread. And I would just note in March, there was reporting that the Afghan government had pleaded with Iran uh, to close or restrict the border crossings because more than 15,000 people were crossing the border between Iran and Afghanistan, bringing COVID-19 into Afghanistan. And all 21 of the first confirmed cases involved travelers returning from Iran. So you asked about the 80% number. So U.S. forces Afghanistan and the NATO spokesman, um, Sonny Leggett, claimed uh, in this tit for tat with the Taliban online that there was that they discussed this notion there would be an 80 percent reduction in violence after the February 29th agreement. Very important to note that 80 percent figure appears nowhere in the actual text of the written agreement, which is three and a half pages long. Mm. As, I've been, as I've been saying, if you if you've leased a car, you've signed more comprehensive paperwork than that than this agreement uh, <laughs> amounted to, or even if you've rented a car. Quite frankly, that 80 percent figure doesn't appear or anywhere in there, neither does the, the phrase reduction in violence. Uh, so one of the things we've been harping on is you have to be very careful here in what actually was agreed upon and what wasn't. And if there's an understanding or an agreement, will it be in the text of the agreement? If it's not in the agreement, then I don't know what you're talking about. And of course, the Taliban's behavior is entirely consistent with the agreement, which was a withdrawal agreement, in which the U.S. didn't extract any concessions from the Taliban, offer up concessions on behalf of the Afghan government, which wasn't even a party to the talks, and agreed to withdraw within 14 months, getting nothing but empty counterterrorism assurances in return. So this is this is why we've been saying all along that if the U.S. is withdrawing, then no deal is better than a bad deal. You know, there's one other um, actor here committing acts of, committing violence, and that's uh, the Islamic State's Khorasan province, sometimes called ISIS-K or ISK. Um, to understand what their role is, ideologically, uh, they're not very different from al-Qaeda or from the Taliban, but they're obviously seen as a rival. How important a force are they? How, whom do they threaten? Of course, they threaten the Afghan people. Recently, they hit a maternity ward and did, killed a lot of mothers and babies. How, that, how that, they think that, that helps them, I'm not sure. Maybe just discuss the role of ISK. Well, I mean, ISIS-K, obviously, they still have a prolific terror network in Afghanistan. They're, they've been degraded from their peak. They no longer control the amount of territory. Um, they still have a robust terror presence throughout South Asia, and they're committing heinous attacks like this one on a funeral procession in Nangahar and this attack in Kabul where they're accused of doing it, and I have no reason to doubt that. The bottom line here, though, is a, well, a couple of bottom lines. One, the Taliban still is the prime actor driving violence in Afghanistan. So there's also tension on ISIS because they have these headline-catching attacks, which are sort of just beyond human description. But the Taliban is still, according to UN statistics and every piece of independent reporting you can grab, the Taliban is still killing and maiming far more civilians than ISIS is. So, and the Taliban has a far wider footprint for its insurgency, its terrorist attacks for Afghanistan, and ISIS-K does. So it's a little bit, I saw some of the reporting after the attack in Kabul in particular, there was sort of a shift by the State Department and others to try and say, well, you know, everybody needs to come together to fight ISIS-K. Yeah. That ignored <laughs> the fact that the Taliban is on the offensive on the march throughout the country and is killing and maiming far more people. But one other quick point, ISIS-K um, built itself primarily by um, picking off disaffected Afghan Taliban and Pakistani Taliban figures. So to your point, Cliff, that they're not all that dissimilar from the Taliban and Al-Qaeda, right, because a lot of their commanders are actually guys who were upset with the chain of command and decided to switch hats and become ISIS-K followers. Now, ISIS and the Taliban and Al-Qaeda do clash 
throughout the region, uh, throughout Afghanistan and Eastern Afghanistan in particular. Um, they've clashed in the North as well, but you know what? So does Al Qaeda and ISIS, you know, throughout everywhere from West Africa through Syria to South Asia as well. So the idea that the Taliban is some credible counterterrorism partner for us against ISIS, which is one of these ideas that was pitched, basically means you're rooting for Al Qaeda's biggest ally in Afghanistan. And then why not root for Al Qaeda in Somalia or Syria <laughs> or West Africa where they're where they're fighting? You know, so it really shows us this, this misunderstanding of all this and sort of this, uh, this this gross ignorance is set in on what's actually happening here, and it's it's disturbing to watch. And Brad, do you have any thoughts on uh, on on the, the? I guess it's it's a kind of a a rivalry we have, not just in Afghanistan, plenty of other places between ISIS and between Al Qaeda and Al Qaeda's allies, such as the Taliban. Uh, the U.S. government is saying that's not quite true, but we'll get back to that. Uh, I mean, it's sort of a Trotsky-Stalin uh, split. Would you? Is that fair? Or? Yeah, yeah, I think it is. And, and I think Tom makes some great points there. And we could get into the, the kind of common DNA or history, if you will, in Iraq and Syria between Al-Qaeda and ISIS and, and the divorce and, and all that sort of thing. But uh, to make a long story short, I just view them as different shades of the same Islamist terrorist evil. Um, I mean, just to put it simply, and, um, you know, I mean, if you're going to kill uh, uh, mothers giving birth in a hospital, I mean, what more do you, you know? The Afghan National Security Force is trying to protect those mothers. ISIS apparently trying to kill them. I mean, that kind of puts it, puts it simply what's at stake here. When General McMaster, the chair of the Center of Military Political Power, that, um, talks about the stakes of what we're confronting here, I think that attack on the maternity ward really kind of lays bare what's at stake here. Um, you know, and, and Tom's point is excellent. I mean, the idea that we would outsource our counterterrorism in some way to the Taliban, that we're going to lean and trust the Taliban to go after ISIS. Yes, they've, they've fought and killed one another, but give me a break. I mean, what a, what a ridiculous concept and really underscores the fundamental premise of these negotiations that is so deeply flawed that we can talk more about if you like. We will. We will. Do we know how many ISIS fighters there, probably, there are in Afghanistan? Do we have a reliable estimate for that? Oh, Cliff, you've just struck on the bane of my existence. There are all, there, there are all, there are all these assessments out there talking about the number of ISIS fighters. And here's the, here's the reality, folks. Nobody knows, okay? I track all this stuff day in and day out. Nobody really knows. Uh, the assessments are all over the place. You know, the assessments for the ISIS mothership in Iraq and Syria was all over the place. The bottom line, what we focus on is sort of whether or not they're holding ground or contesting ground and their terrorist activities or their war fighting. Uh, the insurgency operations. Those are the, those are the measures we look at because it's really difficult to figure out how many guys they've got. Um, you know, the estimates range from a thousand to several thousand, and again, nobody really knows. What we what we say right now is, look, ISIS K still can conduct major terrorist attacks in Kabul, the Afghan capital, and elsewhere. ISIS K can still uh, you know fight Afghan forces on occasion. Um, they, they still have a robust network of some sort in Afghanistan and throughout the region. But it's not nearly as robust as far as we could tell based on the operational data as it was in the recent past. And it's certainly eclipsed by the Taliban and al-Qaeda's operations throughout the region. And just well, just stay on this for one second. In, in terms of territory held, does ISIS hold much territory or are they more kind of fade into the night so, uh, forces? So ISIS had primarily six districts in Nangarhar that the U.S. worked with Afghan the Afghans to basically dislodge them from that territory. This is eastern Afghanistan. They probably have a presence in Nangarhar to this day, Kunar, which is in eastern Afghanistan, a couple other pockets there, and they're sporadically uh, sort of dispersed throughout the rest of the country. Um, but they're not contesting and holding territory the way the Taliban is. They're not contesting. They're not contesting. Uh, you know, basically in every province now, the Taliban is contesting territory. You can't say the same thing for ISIS. 
Okay, and just again, before we leave the subject, how many Taliban fighters do you estimate do we know? <laughs> okay, you can give me the same answer. I just want to make sure I've asked. And second, how much territory does Taliban hold right now, as you estimate? Well, it's the same answer. I mean, basically, nobody really knows yet. But the estimates even there go far greater than ISIS-K. So the estimates go all the way up to 100,000 Taliban fighters. You get into all sorts of issues with seasonality and full-time fighters versus part-time fighters. It becomes a big problem trying to count that. The bottom line is that the Afghan Taliban contests or controls well more than half of the country, uh, as opposed to sort of a sporadic presence from ISIS-K. So you're talking about this is the central threat to the Afghan government comes from the Taliban. And the U.S. policy has basically been to pretend that the Taliban and Afghan government can come together against ISIS, which is a much lesser threat uh, in, in the country and in the region. And it doesn't make any sense when the Taliban is attacking the Afghan government on, every, on a daily basis and tells you over and over again that they're going to resurrect the Islamic Emirate of Afghanistan, which is what they're all Am about. I right though, would I be right, though, to say that the Taliban at present doesn't hold any uh, urban areas that it's in the countryside? Well, you got to be careful there because they've made a very concerted, concerted effort to basically avoid expanding the manpower that it would take to control provincial capitals. What they've done is they've surrounded several provincial capitals. They're waiting for the U.S. and foreign withdrawal, Western mm-hmm. withdrawal, and then they're going to pounce. And by the way, in the last 48 hours, we've seen, since, this, since we're recording this, we've seen heavy war fighting in Kunduz, which is the uh, provincial capital that they've overrun in the past a couple of times, and they're, they're uh, challenging for authority again. There's heavy fighting in other capitals. They've certainly shown the capacity to overrun provincial capitals but the thing that's kept them out of it, the thing that's kept those free from the jihadist uh, reign of terror, the thing that's kept them free has been the Western for, Western presence. And without the Western presence, we're right. predicting that several capitals will fall pretty pretty quickly. President Ghani and his the guy who's been his main rival, Abdullah Abdullah, they've agreed to inform a more inclusive government now. They seem to have overcome some of their very serious differences. Is that is that helpful? You know, the the uh, the image of uh, Ashraf Ghani and Abdullah Abdullah a few months back uh, declaring themselves president on the same day was kind of bizarre and surreal and really <laughs> unfortunate and has led to an extended period of, of political dysfunction and disunity in Kabul that's been fundamentally unhelpful. Uh, and so I'm glad to see that uh, there's been an, an agreement brokered. Uh, um, Ahmed Karzai apparently played a role. Uh, mm-hmm. Under this agreement, uh, Ashraf Ghani will be the president or chief executive. Abdullah Abdullah will lead peace negotiations. You know, this purportedly will take advantage of their respective strengths. Ashraf Ghani is kind of a, a technocrat, loves the details of governance, and will be able to kind of focus on those elements of the Afghan government. Abdullah Abdullah, who uh, characterizes himself as kind of a, a deal maker, negotiator, and coalition builder, will try to focus on the peace negotiations. I'm not saying that it's ideal or and I'm not optimistic, unfortunately, but it's better than where we were with, uh, you know, two different individuals claiming to be president of the same country while trying to, to fight uh, an increase in Taliban violence. So that's where we are. Meanwhile, President Trump, I think, uh, uh, unwisely has, has signaled a desire to re- leave Afghanistan regardless. And so, you know, that really undermines yeah. any better for the Taliban to, to, to negotiate in good faith with us. I mean, I guess that gets to the fiction, and this is something that that's, Tom, you you you've been talking about for a very long time, and, and very persuasively. The fiction is that the Taliban has leadership that is interested in peace. They're interested. They don't want to sacrifice their young men anymore in battle. That they are willing to take uh, half a loaf rather than no loaf. That they're willing. That they believe in the concept that they, this, there could be a a series of compromises and a win-win outcome to this. 
and that they'd rather that than to stay on the battlefield and shed blood for as long as it would take for them to be totally and fully in power. And I, I think you've made the argument that this, that this is something a lot of Americans, perhaps not least um, our leader negotiator, uh, Ambassador Khalid Khalilzad, Khalilzad, seems to be talking about. He should know better because he's, you know, he is an expert in that region. And yet he seems to be arguing that, no, no, the Taliban is, is, is interested in peace like we are if we can just come up with a, a, a deal that's good enough for them and good enough for us. Well, I mean, I, the bottom line from my perspective is where's the evidence, right? If you're going to make a claim that the Taliban is interested in something other than resurrecting the Islamic Emirate of Afghanistan, you're going to have to show me the evidence. And as a, a nerd who covers this on a day of, every day of his life for many years on end, I don't see any evidence. What I see a lot of evidence of is that Habatul Akhanzada is referred to as the Emir of the Faithful. This is the same title that Abu Bakr al-Baghdadi was given when he was declared the Caliph for ISIS. Um, uh, Habatul Akhanzada is declared the Emir of the Faithful both by the Taliban and the Al-Qaeda. So this is this means that he aspires to be the ruler over all Muslims, not just in Afghanistan. That certainly shows you that there's not really a political compromise in the waiting there. You're not going to have two emirs of the faithful, right? You're not going to have three emirs of the faithful. You're not going to have Akhunzada, Ghani, and Abdullah, right? You're going to have Akhunzada. That's their political model. But the bottom line is that these negotiations, these talks were always based on a phony premise that the Taliban wanted something other than the Islamic Emirate of Afghanistan, Islamic Emirate of Afghanistan to rise to power once again. And again, the evidence is very clear, crystal clear, that that is, in fact, what they're fighting for. So basically, the U.S., and people were involved in this process decided to assume away the, the central problem. They decided to assume that the Taliban uh, wanted what we want from the Taliban. And once you get into that sort of wish casting or that sort of uh, uh, sort of fantasy land sort of vision of your enemies and what they're doing, my argument has been it's effectively over because you're not taking into account what they really are fighting for. And just one quick point on the, the, the tired point, uh, Cliff. Yeah, one of the things we, we heard from a lot of officials was how tired the Taliban was of fighting. I don't think the Taliban is tired of fighting. If you look at the, the fighting since February 29th, they seem to be, you know, itching for a fight. They're fighting through all throughout Afghanistan. I think the U.S. is tired of fighting. The U.S. political and military are tired of fighting. I think that our, some of our allies are tired of fighting, but the Taliban fights on. So there's a, lot, a healthy dose of projection there to pretend that they're tired of fighting. Brad, this is, this, this is a, a point that disturbs me. We keep talking about Americans being war-weary, and some certainly many Americans are. Um, we don't see the Taliban being war weary. We talk about how we can't afford to continue these to, to be fighting in places like this. The Taliban doesn't seem to be uh, talking about how that it needs to reduce its budget because it has to fight the coronavirus and it has to get businesses back up and running. It seems to be well, reasonably well supplied, not so badly supplied that it's getting uh, beaten. And that raises a little bit of a larger question that I think I'd like to get your thoughts on. After all these years, this ragtag non-state actor, the Taliban, um, has been a force that we've not been able to defeat. Um, and meanwhile, we've got a new book out uh, by Christian Bros on the U.S. military saying, suggesting that if the U.S. military went up against China right now, it's not at all clear that the U.S. would prevail. That suggests really... That leads to some disturbing conclusions. What What are your thoughts on this? Oh, thanks, Cliff. It's a great question. It's a. It's um. There's so many angles to that. Uh, you know, I uh, let me start with this. You know, I I understand how the average American is not tracking this on a daily basis like Tom and others are. 
uh, might be frustrated and, 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 you know, asking how the heck can and the U.S. military not be doing better in Afghanistan? You know, we're the most powerful military in the history of the world. We've been at this since 2001. What the heck is going on if, if, they, if the Afghans can't do it themselves and let's just forget about it? I, I kind of at a superficial level understand that. But, you know, a, a metaphor that I and others have used before is, you know, it's, it's like a, a boxing match that, you know, um, that, you know, as a plebe at West Point, we all had to take boxing. And, you know, and by that third round, your arms are just dead tired. And the problem is if you put down your arms, uh, even though you're tired, you get clocked and you get knocked out. And you got to keep fighting no matter how tired you are. Otherwise, you're going to get knocked out. And, and to extend the metaphor at risk of extending it too far. If, uh, you know, in this case, if you walk out of the ring because you're tired, the, the other fighter, in this case, Islamist terrorists may follow us home. You know, that's not a theoretical argument. It's a historical argument. That's what they did on 9-11. They, they brought their terrorism here. And so I, I really think the burden of proof is on anyone who would say that the U.S. military can safely withdraw from Afghanistan and, and us not see another 9-11, maybe this time even worse with the use of weapons of mass destruction. So, yes, uh, the defense budget is under pressure. Yes, I see China as the top threat we confront, but we have to be able to walk and chew gum at the same time. And if we maintain a modest force there uh, for, uh, focused on counterterrorism, helping our Afghan partners who are imperfect by all means, and an Afghan government that is imperfect by all means, that can be a means to preventing something from bad from happening. And that would be another 9-11. And I think we could probably do that with a relatively small number of U.S. troops and partners there. I think the question comes down to what are our options? I mean, you have only so many options. Now, uh, you know, what should we be doing in Afghanistan? Let me mention three and that's, that strike me as possible. One is we just bug out. We fold up our tents and we go, say la guerre. That we lose, we accept the fact that we've, that we've lost there and we can live without Afghanistan. There's certainly a constituency out there for doing that, except they'd rather say, oh, let's declare victory, but I don't think anybody gets fooled. Two, we say, damn those torpedoes, full speed ahead. Um, but that means we're going to not have 8,000 troops there or 9,000. You're going to have to have like 100,000 troops, I, I think, uh, correct me if I'm wrong, as a minimum. I don't see Trump doing that. I don't see Biden doing that. I don't think the U.S. wants to make that kind of commitment, and I understand. The third is what you just described. Uh, you keep a small force in Afghanistan. It's, it, it, it is an advisory force and an assistance force. It frustrates the Taliban's ambitions. Um, it, it, it tries to keep them out of the capital, uh, out of the provincial capitals as well. You cut off their funds as best you can. You let them live off the land. They eat the chickens. They steal from the peasants. Um, and you maintain that as a forward base against jihadism throughout the Indo-Pacific region. Now, those are three options. Let me go to Tom. Are there other options beyond those three that I'm not thinking of that we need to be considering? Yeah, I mean, I think there are a bunch of options. The problem I have, Cliff, with the question is that I think we're constrained by what we're seeing from policymakers. When you have the president of the United States say the Taliban's going to fight the terrorists for us, when you have the secretary of state say that the Taliban, and that's literally what he said, and the secretary of state say that the Taliban has agreed to destroy Al-Qaeda, which they haven't, and that's not in the agreement. When you have these types of things, these types of statements being made, and you have no pushback from senior U.S. military leadership, you have no pushback from anybody, really other than us, on the, this deal and how bad it is. Um, I mean, it's very tough to come up with the sort of a solution that you think is tenable. That's the problem I have. I mean, I think you could look at a whole range of options if you wanted to continue, keep a continued presence. But keep in mind, Cliff, that the February 29th agreement in Doha 
calls for a full American withdrawal in 14 months from that date. So you're talking about by the end of April 2021, all American troops and foreign troops are supposed to be out of country. And there's nothing about the continuing presence of 8,600 in the deal. There's nothing about a continuing presence at all. In fact, there's even a language in the deal, uh, which just shows how servile the whole thing is. There's even language in the deal that says the U.S. will refrain from threatening Afghanistan or conducting any military action against Afghanistan ever again because the Taliban is now going to take care of it for us. I mean, this is really ludicrous, right? And when you have this sort of policymaking, this sort of understanding of it, it's very tough for me to sit back and say, well, you know, look, I need to make the case for X, Y, and Z policy options. Can I do that? Sure. But if you don't have leadership that's going to execute it, Tom Johnson's not going to execute it, right? If we don't have leadership that's going to execute it, then it's sort of a fool's errand, right? I mean, so I think what we're doing is we're documenting what's actually happening, and it's very uncomfortable, a lot of what's going on. But I think for history's sake and for the Afghan's sake, we need to do that. All right, but I'm, I, I hear you, and it's very persuasive, but I'm going to push back on you a little bit. Let's, I want you to imagine that this afternoon a limousine shows up at your house, and it's from the U.S. government, and they say, come on, you've got a meeting in three hours. It's with the president. It's with the secretary of defense. And it's with the Secretary of State. And they call you in and they throw a mask on your face. Um, and they say, okay, uh, we're here to discuss. We, 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 you're right. Uh, we've been saying things that we know aren't true. Uh, we need a better policy. Um, tell us, Tom, what is it? Well, that's one heck of a hypothetical, Cliff. Yes, now I have to. I, now I need. Now I need a new. I need a new president, and two cabinet officials that don't exist, and then I have to go and tell them and tell them, you know, what we're going to do. I mean, it's sort of, you know, I mean, yeah. They've I mean, read I, you. They've read Long War Journal. They've read you. They said, you know what? At a certain point, Tom's right. So we got to change course. Let him tell us how. I mean, I would be looking at different strategies for tying up the Taliban regionally throughout Afghanistan. If, 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 it, if the real president wants a full withdrawal from American troops, I don't think that that obviously I think that that is disastrous for the future of Afghanistan. Um, you know, but there's but the bottom line is that's what he wants. I would instead of being negotiating with the Taliban, which is what the Trump administration went forward with, I would have been negotiating with the Afghan government for basically what's going to be our order, your order of battle as we draw down troops to a, a counterterrorism force or counterterrorism posture. You know, what security assistance can we get from international allies and partners to help you keep them at bay? And you know, are there areas where the the Afghan government doesn't have a security presence that can't keep the Taliban at bay? Who do we cut any deals with? potentially unsavory characters in those part, those corners of Afghanistan to prevent the Taliban from overrunning even further. I mean, there are a lot of things you could do along those lines. I just don't think anybody's thinking along those lines, Cliff. And, and the bottom line is, that they, again, the, the agreement is, the agreement now is, if the U.S. abides by the agreement, now remember, the Taliban doesn't really have to do anything to abide by this agreement, right? They don't really have to do anything at all because the U.S. isn't holding their, their feet to the fire on, on anything. But if the U.S. abides, holds the agreement, the U.S. is out, you know, by mid to 2021 and you're at a point where there's really no leverage to do anything. So, um, I don't know. It's very tough for me to, to entertain hypotheticals when I, when I just have such a grim view and I understand where you're coming from, but believe me, I know you want, you want the <laughs> outcome. You want some, you want something to say where we can, we can continue to have a proactive American leadership, strong American leadership. We don't lose to these jihadis. I get it. I mean, guys like Brad served in Afghanistan. The idea that this, that more of this country is going to be overrun by the Taliban they went to fight is really, it's really disgusting. It's, it's, it's part of what motivates us, you know, but the idea, you know, the bottom line at the other day for me is we're dealing with the hand we're dealing with and it's, it's, it's bad news. I know. Let me go back to Brad with this. I know we, we are, Tom's right. We have the hand we have in front of us. You can only play it so well, but when you have that kind of a hand, your choices are you fold, you double, you double down, 
or you, you pick up your chips and whatever left of them to walk out of the game. You can't correct. Uh, you, you can't correct history. You can't change things you did six months ago. You can only change things right now. And I think I hear what you're saying, Brad, but let's be very clear on it. Based on where we are right now, where can we go that is least damaging? And I don't, again, I don't, I don't think we're going towards victory anywhere here. We're going towards least damaging policies moving forward in the next administration, whichever administration that should be. Thanks, Cliff. One comment, and then I'll play the I'll play the hypothetical. The yeah. comment would be the reason. One of the reasons why I think the American public is so tired, quote unquote, tired, and so generally supportive of perhaps leaving Afghanistan is because of a lack of presidential leadership. Mm-hmm. If the president were explaining what was at stake and the consequences, then I think you'd see different public opinion. So this is like a this is mm-hmm. a cycle here, right? And the lack of presidential leadership. I don't want, I don't want to cut you off, Brad, but can I just add one point quickly to, to, to buttress what you're saying? When President Obama spoke about the necessity of fighting in Afghanistan and keeping the Taliban at bay and, and not allowing them to win, you saw the public approval ratings go up for the war effort, uh, you know, pretty quickly in 2009. So you're, what you're saying is backed up by empirical evidence. It's the exact reality that you see, and and the point is we haven't had that. Type of leadership in a long time. So exactly, not lack of, of saying why it's important, why it's worthy of the great sacrifice, and and by the way, visiting our troops on a regular basis, right? I mean, these things matter. But anyway, um, here we are. So what do we do? In an ideal world that we're not in, I would recommend the following. I would say, hey Taliban, we're not going to sit down at the negotiating table with you again until we have the Afghan government there in a formal and official capacity. Period. Uh, Note to self, we should have never done that in the first place. Negotiating with the Taliban without the Afghan government there was a big mistake that undermined the only sustainable exit plan we had, and that is a viable, independent Afghan government. So big mistake. Say no more of that, Taliban. You want to negotiate, put your money where your mouth is, show your good faith, which I doubt, and that is we're going to have the Afghan government there in official formal capacity. That would be the first message. The second message would be, and this is the same message that Republicans on the Senate Armed Services Committee were so critical of the Obama administration, is no more of this calendar-based crud, right? We're going to stay in Afghanistan as long as U.S. national security interests require. That's a conditions-based, not a calendar-based approach. And so Taliban, you know, you think you you got the watch, you know, we got the watches, you got the time. We're going to stay here with our Afghan partners who have fight, fought and died in the thousands to stand by them to prevent from another 9-11 emanating from this country too. Three, I would aggressively resume uh, air support for the Afghan forces. I mean, this, yeah. this, whole, this whole fiction where we know we've, you know, we, as Tom knows better than me, we actually saw increase in Taliban attacks after the quote unquote peace deal. And yet we're gonna kind of constrain ourselves to, to, to try to honor some fiction, no. Increase, I'm not saying, you know, putting large quantities of, of American infantry back on the front lines. The Afghans are willing to fight. They're brave. They're dying uh, to sit for their own country. But let's give them the full air support. Let's bring in the A-10s. Let's bring in the AC-130s. Let's rock these suckers and so that they have some incentive to come back and make clear that we, we are here for the long term. But just kind of the last thing I'll say is that, you know, it's not just about counterterrorism in Afghanistan. It's, um, it's about counterterrorism in the region. And we should not underestimate the importance of, of a modest U.S. economy of force, military and intelligence presence in Afghanistan and the value that brings to the projection of force when necessary into places like Pakistan. The afghan pak mm. border is uh, jihadi central in the world. And, and as Tom knows well and Bill Rogio knows well, so many of the worst terrorist organizations 
are connected to that region. And it's a landlocked region. It's hard to access. Don't overestimate what modern technology allows you to do in terms of protection of force. Having an intel presence and the U.S. military presence in Afghanistan is very, very valuable for what we may need to do in the future again in Pakistan. Let me let me follow up on that. Should the president, should the Pentagon be redefining what's going on in Afghanistan? In other words, you have the media almost everywhere saying, this is the longest war we've ever fought. Perhaps what we should be saying is, you don't understand. We're not fighting. There's a war going on in Afghanistan. We're not fighting a war in Afghanistan. We have a mission in Afghanistan. That mission is to support the government, support the, that, that military. That mission is to do what we can to prevent the Taliban from, uh, from achieving its grand ambitions. Uh, that mission is to suppress the jihadi terrorists throughout the region. It's, it's useful to be there, better to be there than Georgia or North Carolina or Kansas if we want to complete this mission. Sometimes we'll have special forces. They may embed. We will have the air power there. But th- this is not about achieving some great victory, having a ticker tape parade and having a great ally in Afghanistan. This is about making sure that the worst possible things that could happen don't happen. Not preventing bad things from happen, happening is a useful mission, and that can be called mission success. That is different from saying we're in a war just like World War II or just like – it's not that. Maybe we're misunderstanding the whole damn thing. Completely agree. I, I can't say it better myself. Preventing another 9-11 – is uh, in, is a low bar, but a, a, an important bar, and that would be mission success uh, in, in terms of thousands of Americans who have served through there. And then just one quick comment. If you look at what bin Laden said, what he wrote uh, before 9-11, you know, he highlighted instances in U.S. history where he saw American soldiers being killed and then America withdrawing. He talked about Vietnam. He talked about uh, uh, Somalia, Mogadishu. And he says, you kill the Americans and they run. I mean, that's, I'm paraphrasing, that's basically what he said. And so, you know, thankfully he's dead and he's where he belongs now. But if America withdraws and we see uh, Saigon in Kabul, you know, mm-hmm. from the, the American embassy in Kabul uh, from the rooftop, if we see that, um, can you only imagine, Tom, how this would spark uh, jihadi recruitment around the world? and how they would use us. They, they claim to have been the primary reason for the fall of the Soviet Union. They defeated the Soviet Union, not us. Now, imagine what they're going to say with the United States. And this is not a rhetorical thing. They will use this for recruiting, and, we'll, and we'll, I think we would see them uh, supercharged. Yeah, no, I think that that's been one of the main concerns we've put forth as well. Totally agree, Brad. I mean, it's it's when you have to understand in the jihadi scheme what the Khorasan is. You know, there's all this mythology, the Khorasan, which is this region that covers Afghanistan, Pakistan, and much of the surrounding countries, that when the black flag rises again, of Tawheed, monotheism, rises again in Afghanistan, the Khorasan, that this is a sign that basically Allah's will is with them. This is a common theme that they've had for a long time. And they're certainly getting ready to proclaim that now. They're getting ready to say that the first, not only was the first superpower defeated here, but now the second one, the U.S. has been defeated here. And the main objection that we've had to this whole thing, and there are many, but you know, just to take it one quick step back, part of the reason we got here was, of course, as Brad has said before, too, you know, with the erratic political leadership. So a lot of the militaries, sort of what they've had to do is, is following erratic political leadership, where you have President Obama saying, we're all in for a surge for 18 months, then we're out. And then by 2014, you have a situation where America's not only one foot out, but it's one foot and three toes out of Afghanistan. And basically, the force posture was less than 10,000 troops at that point, and sort of muddled along there. And then President Trump increased it by several thousand. This is not a huge 100,000 uh, troop 
force. Okay. This is, this was maxed out at about 12, 13,000, whatever it is, and is now down going down to 8,600 as we speak. So this isn't a huge D-Day style effort to your point, Cliff, about World War II victories and everything else. And to Brad's point about having a small uh, uh, force that sort of uh, can be sustained. But beyond that, I mean, what we've objected to the most is that basically, this is probably the one thing I would say that's most important I'm going to say. The main problem with this war, as far as we're concerned, is that basically there was this erratic decision-making where the Taliban needed to be defeated. Then all of a sudden, voila, it didn't need to be defeated in Afghanistan. And what happened was there was a revisionist history of the Taliban written in which they were sort of, there was this exculpatory narrative crafted that said they weren't really in bed with Al-Qaeda prior to 9-11. And you don't really have to worry about that aspect of this whole story. And there's even some people who claim that we created the Taliban as an enemy because of invading Afghanistan in the first place. I just got to say to listeners, this there's nothing I've read that's more absurd than that since 9-11. Okay? This is the most absurd stuff. But this Taliban apology, this Taliban revisionism uh, really sunk in. And it became, in some channels, versions of it became enshrined in policymaking circles. Oh, in 2011, there were briefings at the National Security Council in which top officials said, you know, the Taliban isn't really our enemy. They're not really in bed with al-Qaeda. Well, I've got to say, folks, that's utter nonsense. You know, I mean, we've got the Long World Journal exists. FDD's Long World Journal exists for several reasons, 10, 20 reasons. One of them is as an encyclopedia or a catalog of all the evidence showing that the Taliban was in bed with al-Qaeda prior to 9-11, immediately after 9-11 and remains in bed with al-Qaeda to this day. And nothing in the February 29th Doha Accord, which supposedly was going to lead the Taliban, and we're now going to accept the Taliban's word that they're going to constrain al-Qaeda from attacking the U.S. or anywhere else in the world. Nothing in that accord changes those facts whatsoever. And why are you talking about about al-Qaeda? I wanted to bring this up. I think it's important to bring it up. Maybe the the final point we we talked about today, there's a lot of people who think and have thought for a long time that al-Qaeda is sort of is on the ropes, is down on its heels, isn't doing so well. I know you've been arguing this. I remember you debating Peter Bergen on this point years years ago after Osama bin Laden was killed. Actually, and, and he I, said it was all over. Two thousand. It was all over. He said it was all over. But this is you know, don't worry about Iraq. Don't worry about any of this. The jihad is all over. Well, that didn't work out so well, did it? Now, I mean, I think it's important to remind people that Al Qaeda is not a shadow of its former self. It's become, in many ways, stronger and wider spread. And I want you to just talk a little bit about that. And I don't know if most people realize that we had an Al-Qaeda attack on American soil last December. On yep. American soil. People, yep. According to the FBI, the Saudi gunman who killed three U.S. sailors and injured eight other U.S. military personnel at a naval, naval air station uh, in Florida um, was an al-Qaeda operative. The attorney general, William Barr, said that, that Saudi, and it's Saudi, this is important too, Air Force Cadet Mohammed Saeed al-Shamrani, had been training with U.S. forces in Florida, had joined the Saudi military, especially, only in order to carry out this special, special operation. operation, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, and this took years of planning and preparation. And, and by the way, you would think that the Saudis would be good at vetting these uh, Al Qaeda people, but he evident, evidently, this is the least, less bad uh, uh, scenario. Um, he fooled the Saudis. Let's hope he fooled the Saudis. I think that's the case, uh, Tom. And then I'll let Brad obviously chime in if you want. Well, I'll try and do this quickly. There's a, there's a lot of stuff involved there, but just first, in terms of Al Qaeda not being a show as former self, the first thing you have to understand is that there was sort of this disconnected dots model or paradigm for Al Qaeda that we fought for years, which basically said that Al Qaeda is Osama bin Laden and is not so merry men somewhere in Pakistan. They're holed up, waiting to be droned to death, 
And as soon as the last two or three drone strikes land, it's all over. Don't worry about Al-Qaeda. That was the narrative that was, that was basically promulgated in 2011, 2012. And then basically part of that narrative said that these other groups that are out there, they're just sort of loosely affiliated with Al-Qaeda, but they're not the real Al-Qaeda. Well, that, that was all wrong. So the, the bottom line is Al-Qaeda um, has its central leadership, its central management. Ayman al-Zawahiri is the head of that central management to this day. By the way, his allegiance, Ayman al-Zawahiri's own allegiance, is to Habitullah al-Qanzada, the emir of the Taliban. And so Zawahiri has a blood oath that hangs around his neck, this is the way the jihadis say it, to Al-Qanzada, in which if he violates it, the jihadis have the right to take his, take his neck. That's the whole point of this. And so through Zawahiri, the al-Qaeda around the globe owes its allegiance to the Taliban emir. This remains unbroken after the February 29th accord. Al-Qanzada has not renounced Zawahiri, which is what we called for if you want to start with a real renunciation of al-Qaeda or a real break with al-Qaeda. Al-Qanzada actually, as we're recording this, he just released another statement today on all the Taliban channels, not a word about al-Qaeda or Zawahiri. So this, remain, this remains un, unrenounced, unbroken. But now al-Qaeda has regional branches. So they have a regional branch in Afghanistan called al-Qaeda in the Indian subcontinent which is fighting to resurrect the Taliban's Islamic Emirate. They also operate in Pakistan, Bangladesh, Kashmir, elsewhere throughout the region. But then Al-Qaeda has regional branches elsewhere. They've got regional branches in Yemen, Somalia, West Africa, Syria. And all of these branches are loyal to Ayman al-Zawahiri. They're all loyal through Zawahiri to Habutu al-Qanzada that they recognize as the emir of the faithful, the new proto-caliph, the new guy who's going to rule the, calif- the caliphate that they're fighting to resurrect. So to Brad's point, what he was saying earlier about raising the tides for the jihadis, there's real, there are real reasons for the concern of that, just based on the actual evidence you can see from what the jihadis are saying and how they're structured and how they're modeled. Now, as, as the Pensacola, this attack on December 6, 2019, you know, AQAP, it was sort of, it was pretty quiet in that regard um, for a couple of months until early February when AQAP, Al-Qaeda in Peninsula, which is one of these regional branches of Al-Qaeda, which is loyal to Zawahiri and through Zawahiri to Akinzada, AQAP released a video in early February 2019, uh, I'm sorry, 2020, claiming full responsibility for this attack, saying that, in fact, that Shamrani was a sleeper agent, that he had been planning this for years under their direction, that he had been plotting and waiting for his time to, to, to lash out. And, you know, there were some in the counterterrorism of the field who poo-pooed that and said, this is just an opportunist to claim by AKP. They're trying to grab the headlines. They're trying to grab attention because the, their fortunes have sort of waned in recent years. And lo and behold, when the FBI finally cracks in Al Shamrani's phones, he had two iPhones, uh, but when they do that after four months, they crack into his phones. They show that there's conclusive, overwhelming evidence. And in fact, not only was he an AQAP sleeper agent, but he was in regular, constant contact with AQAP operatives overseas, including right up to the night before he strikes. So what does this tell you? This tells you that Al-Qaeda, all these years after 9-11, managed to get a sleeper agent onto a U.S. military installation vis-a-vis the Saudi military, the Saudi Royal Air Force. And this tells you that the external operations wing of AQAP, which is one small component of what Al-Qaeda does, meaning they're planning against the West, still has some capacity left in it. And it was wrong for some people to try and write that off. And now you're seeing from FBI Director Christopher Wray and Attorney General Barr and others, they're saying that, in fact, Takai is not the shadow of its former self, but has is a persistent threat to Americans. Brad, let me ask you for kind of final thoughts on any of this. Great. Thank you. Thank you, Cliff. Thanks for this opportunity. No, I, I think uh, I would conclude by saying that, you know, good strategy starts with seeing the world as it is not as we want it to be. You know, it would be wonderful if Taliban, the Taliban would break from Al-Qaeda. That would just be wonderful. I'd love that. But there's no evidence, as Tom says, that, that that's happened. I'm not optimistic, and it has not happened. So that's the first thing. The second thing is it would be wonderful if uh, Al-Qaeda were defeated and they just leave us alone. But the El shamrani attack in, in Pensacola, you know, I've, I've 
been there. We've flown Ranger students down that way uh, years ago. Uh, demonstrates that Al Qaeda still wants to do what? And they're affiliates. They want to hit us at home, and they've had some success in recent months in doing that. So let's put those two things together. The Taliban and Al Qaeda have not uh, separated. The Taliban continues to stand with Al Qaeda, uh, and Al Qaeda still wants to hit us at home. So if we take our foot off of Al Qaeda and the Taliban's throats in Afghanistan, it is reasonable to assume we can expect more attacks here at home. Okay. That's it for now. But the, these conflicts, the long war, um, they'll continue. And our policies will change facts on the ground, though not necessarily for the better. So I look forward to checking with you again before too long. Thanks, Tom. Thanks, Brad. And thanks to all of you joining us today here on Foreign Policy. Thank you for listening to Foreign Policy. If you found the program worthwhile, we suggest you subscribe to Foreign Policy on iTunes, Spotify, Google Play, Stitcher, or wherever you prefer to listen to your podcasts. If we could be doing better, tell us. Send us your feedback, your questions, your ideas. Foreign Policy at FBD.org. For more information about this episode and others and about our distinguished guests, visit us online fdd.org. Until next time, I'm Cliff May. You've been listening to Foreign Policy.